Welcome. You're listening to Gravity Healthcare Hacks with your host, Melissa Brown, Chief Operating Officer from Gravity Healthcare Consulting and self-professed healthcare nerd. Monthly, we will provide industry expertise and tips to help keep your feet firmly on the ground in the world of healthcare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast today. SNF proposed rule 2024. Should you be concerned? I'm excited to have one of our gravity consultants, Carly Cronister, joining us today. Carly has a long history as an occupational therapist assistant and as a compliance officer, which is what she serves in gravity now. Carly, welcome. Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me. So, Carly, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up at gravity today. Sure. I've been a CODA for over 10 years now. Seven of those I've spent at a compliance regional level, primarily in skilled nursing, really focused on contract rehab, but for the last four years have been in healthcare consulting role with Gravity, which has allowed me to branch out a little bit and work with some different levels of care. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's amazing how different the role is, even though on technically on paper, the job description seems the same. It's not really when you switch over to the consultant role. It's definitely a unique new challenge. Exactly. You never know what you're going to get. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're glad to have you here at Gravity, and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot from you today. So we know probably everyone by this point has had the opportunity to read or be debriefed on the SNF proposed rule for fiscal year 2024. So we're not going to spend our podcast talking about some of the nitty gritty details. Rather, our goal today is to enlighten you listeners to understand how you need to be thinking strategically as a result of the proposed rule this year. So let's start with payments. Carly, can you walk us through how the payments are changing? Sure. The PDPM model as a whole was originally implemented in a budget neutral manner, and that just didn't happen. And it it resulted in an unintended increase of about 5%. So this year with the market-based updates, um, which will be an increase of a 2.7%, coupled with the forecast error of 3.6%, brings us into a total of a 6.1% increase, which is estimated to be 1.2 billion. However, the second phase of the reconciliation of the parity adjustments will actually result in an estimated negative 2.3%, which is a $745 million de- decrease. So in total, it will still result in an increase of 3.7%, again, at that $1.2 billion estimated. Yeah, and you know, I think um, advocacy is really key right now. It is unbelievable that they are still pursuing the PDPM parity adjustment with all of the increased costs that providers are facing today and the really unique challenges. So, you know, um, we appreciate the increase that we received this year. It just feels like a bit of smoke and mirrors. We're going to raise this and we're going to lower that and all of those kinds of things. What are your thoughts behind that, Carly? I agree. The 6.1% increase sounds great. And then you bring that down with the parity adjustments and it just hurts the bottom line. Um, You know, they still estimate it to be the 3.7% increase for part A, but nursing homes are dealing with serious staffing crises, retention issues, record inflation. These are really high cost obstacles that will likely absorb a lot of that increase. Yeah. If not more than that. 
So it's a, it's a scary time to be a provider. And the best advice that we can give to anyone is take the information you learn in this webinar and send some sort of communication to your uh, Congress people so that you can have your voice heard and that maybe we can do something about adjusting these rates and making them more appropriate. We all know that inflation in our communities has been a whole lot more than 6.1%. So they can say what they want about those numbers, but this is just not accurate. So let's shift gears and talk about the ICD-10 mappings adjustment. There weren't a ton of them this year, but there were one or two that are kind of worth discussing. So uh, what are some of the general changes that were made and what should providers be doing about it? Sure. Just to highlight a few areas, there were six unspecified substance use disorders that were added to medical management in 2022. These are now going to be in that return to provider category. Um, in addition, 162 unspecified codes will also move from medical management to return to providers. So coding is key, MDS coordinating with therapy, identifying that primary diagnosis is going to be key. Yeah. And I think ultimately when it comes to substance abuse disorders, a lot of the codes that are now RTP are unspecified. So it's really about, again, honing in on that um, clinical picture and making sure we've got the specific specificity outlined in our ICD-10 codes that really justify a skilled level of service. So moving into what I think is maybe one of the hottest topics from this year's proposed rule was the SNF QRP or the quality measures and value-based purchasing changes. Uh, let's start with the quality measures, specifically the one relating to COVID vaccination among healthcare personnel and SNF patients who are quote unquote up to date. What should SNFs be thinking about in regard to that change and what are some strategies you'd recommend? Yes, that measure is changing from whether you received the initial primary vaccination series to if you're up to date in accordance with the CDC's most recent guidelines. And that's a tough one because the requirement of what's up to date may change as we're going through this. Um, if you don't have vaccinated staff at this point, there's a chance they may not go that route. And that's just going to have to be considered in your staffing numbers. Absolutely. And I think... Um you know, making them aware that these changes could be coming so they can begin to think about what is the right decision for them as they move to the future can really be a strategy to think about too. I think at this point, most providers have tried just about everything <laughs> to increase uh, vaccination um, adherence. So I just think continued communication and letting people know that there could be a point where your initial series just isn't enough. So if you need to get a medical or religious exemption or something like that, because those are legitimate for you, uh, you want to make sure you get that documentation in so that it doesn't become an issue as we move forward. And that just continues to play into the staffing um, issues out there in the field. It was another huge barrier for communities to be able to staff their buildings when a lot of people left the industry over the vaccination requirements. Yeah. And, you know, even though staffing is such a challenge, I think prudent um, SNF providers are going to require any new hires have to have the vaccination and be up to date um, in order to just sort of avoid uh, a sudden loss of multiple team members if up to date suddenly does get changed and it's an annual vaccination requirement like the flu shot or something like that. So um, obviously we respect everybody's rights, but you know the regulations are what they are. So how can we move forward with that? And, you know, I think one of the most crucial QMs that each SNF has real power to impact under the new rule is the changes in the discharge function score. So we are not going to get credit anymore for just setting a discharge goal. We've been doing that for several years. That's kind of gone to the wayside. It never really was a high quality quality measure, in my opinion. 
Um, but now they're going to look at, did we achieve a discharge function score that is consistent with their expectation? Not our expectation, not the patient's expectation, but Medicare's expectation. What are your thoughts, Carly, about this QM, which is also tied up in value-based purchasing? And how should providers be adjusting to make the most of this QM? I think it's really important for all staff providing direct care to our nursing home residents um, to be reporting accurately. So that's going to include nursing assistants, therapists, your direct nursing care. They all need to be documenting GG accurately on admission coding. We don't want to see not tested codes. We certainly don't want CMS to assign an admission performance based on their algorithm. It's going to be important that we're setting realistic goals, goals that can be achieved. And bottom line is it's going to take collaboration from all direct care staff to get accurate information to MDS. Totally agree. And, you know, I think I don't love the fact that the power to set the goal is is being taken out of our hands and really taken out of the patient's hands, ultimately. And Medicare gets to decide that based on the clinical indicators and the MDS. And so one of the things that was on an advocacy call yesterday that is an, a thing to consider advocating for is that they show us in their data how close we came. So if we achieved a, a difference of so many points, what was the threshold? for that score. So we know, are we really close or are we really far? We don't just want to know, did we achieve it or not? We want to know how we did compared to what they expected. So hopefully they'll share that data with us. So maybe my favorite QM and VBP item from this year, um, because I feel like it's been, I've been preaching this to my clients for three years, that this was coming, that outcomes were going to be everything. We know they're important with managed care. It was just a matter of time before they came essential for Medicare. So I tell clients all the time, as I'm sure you do, that it can easily take a full year of dedicated attention to get therapy, nursing, and MDS on board to be really reporting these Section GG items accurately and see an impact on your outcome. So not just to improve the accuracy, but also to have a clinical approach that impacts outcomes in a significant manner. So what are your tips for improving clinical outcomes, Carly? I agree. This is something we've been talking about for a long time. And specifically working directly with rehab teams, I really try to um, pump them up. This is your way to show value in the skilled nursing setting. It's no longer a pay for service model. Performance is key. Accurate coding, testing GG items often throughout their plan of care, realistic goal setting. It's also important. In addition, you know, communicating with MDS and therapy needs to happen early and often. It's an all hands on deck approach, but therapy can really drive the outcomes portion and should be driving it. Education is important for staff. I find working with my teams, when they understand the big picture, the buy-in is higher. So when they understand that this coding is not arbitrary, it's not just data being collected, it heavily impacts their community, you tend to see more buy-in they tend to want to get it right. Um, so I really go big picture wise in explaining how GG outcomes, you know, impact the community as a whole. And I do see better results when I take that approach. Absolutely. And I think, um, I think it's really about how do you even know that the section GG coding is accurate, especially your nurses on the floor is somebody, even if it's once a month spot checking two or three patients is somebody following behind the nurse's aid, seeing what they're doing and seeing how they're documenting. No, you can't do that for every 
clinician in your team, but can you do it here and there to at least begin to work on accuracy? And I think another good litmus test for providers is, you know, if you're a provider and your quality measures just aren't up to snuff compared to the rest of the industry, Carly, what would you say are the the averages you like to see right now for self-care mobility improvement over a course of a skilled stay? What type of percentage improvement do you look for? Yeah, my expectations for communities, of course, we know outliers can really change outcomes based Mm -hmm. on, especially if you have low party censuses. Mm -hmm. But as a whole, for an average building, I look for about a 50% increase um, in the total mobility items and about a 30% in self-care. I'm starting to push up into the 60% mobility range and 40% for self-care. Self-care is going to be the hardest to see a large jump in. It's a smaller number of items. And it's often items that don't have as big of a chance to jump. A lot of residents come in maybe high level for eating um, and oral hygiene. So if you're going from supervision to independent, that's going to be a much smaller percentage increase. Where the mobility items, you're probably going to have people coming in very low level for things like the stairs, ambulation of 50 feet, turns with 50 or ambulation of 150 feet, turns with 50 feet. So you have a chance to go a lot bigger in the percentage of improvement all the way from, you know, maybe a max assist up to supervision or independent. Yeah. So I think if you're in a community that's not achieving those types of mobility and self-care outcomes, then a good litmus test for you is to go down in your therapy gym and watch for 15 minutes. Is 50% of what you're seeing exercises, leg exercises, arm exercises, the bike, the side fit, things like that? Or are you seeing functional tasks? If you are not seeing functional tasks as the predominant delivery of care, then that is where your problem is. So the mantra that I've taken to with a lot of our therapy clients in the last couple of years has been functional only all the time, as often as possible, meaning that sure, if a patient comes in with a shoulder replacement and therapy's got to do pendulum exercises, and that's really something that's not easy to teach the nurse's aide to do as a restorative program or something like that, sure, therapy can and should do things like that. But other than that, when could we substitute function for non-functional tasks? As a clinician, I found that I could do it almost all the time. And so, you know, if you really have a, a strong exercise or modality-based program, that's really an opportunity for you to look to make some adjustments, I think. I agree. In the therapy world, I see therapists, you know, struggle. They're in ruts sometimes. They default to exercise Um, Under PDPM, we have the ability to do groups. And I think we really default to non-functional groups. They just struggle with how to manage that. Functional groups are so great when done well. And you can really hit a lot of GG items with a large group of residents like that. It, um, you know, serves everyone in that manner to focus groups around GG as well. Absolutely. And the peer support in a group just cannot be understated. The The self-confidence and the feeling of accomplishment that one patient can get from mentoring another patient is huge. And I can't tell you how many times clinically I could not get a patient to dress their lower body. And then as soon as I'd put them in a group where we were working on that, because everybody else was, the peer pressure pushed them to do it and encouraged them to do it. And then they were able to be more successful and get home sooner. So I think people, I don't know why this has happened, but people look at group as being like a second tier treatment. And I completely disagree with that clinically. In my clinical experience, it is absolutely equal to one-on-one treatment. And in some situations can even be better for specific patients. 
So let's shift gears. I want to talk about what kind of blew me out of the water with the uh, SNF proposed rule. I did not see this coming, the change to the hospital readmission measure. So now it's going to span the length of the entire skilled stay, so not just 30 days after uh, the hospital stay. And it only applies to quote unquote potentially preventable hospital readmissions, again, based on some convoluted algorithm from Medicare about what they've decided is preventable and what is not. So, you know, that type of thing, it always scares me. And also it scares me that the hospital documents the primary diagnosis upon readmission and based on what they pick is what could potentially hurt the SNF. So it's completely out of our control is SNFs. So what are some strategies you might suggest for SNFs to be thinking about in light of this, Carly? That is what's scary when something's out of our hands and we uh, don't hold power over it. I think it's going to come back to then have having built or building a strong relationship with the hospitals, having collaboration with them, being able to communicate back when you feel like you're receiving incorrect diagnoses from the hospitals. Um, Cause that ultimately that can hurt your SNF. So accuracy is going to be key on both sides between the hospital and SNF, but also communication. Yeah. I think you really got to sign someone on your team to dive into that list of potentially preventable readmission codes and really take a hard look at how many patients in the last year went out to the ER with one of those codes? Because probably CMS isn't that far off base. There's probably a few we might clinically disagree with, but probably by and large, the ones they picked are probably ones that could potentially be preventable. So what are systems that you can put in place to um, affect that and begin to manage those cares, manage those patients effectively in the skilled nursing setting? You know, one of the services that uh, I've worked with some is... Um, uh, sniffists who are available via telehealth all evenings, all weekends, and all holidays. So your main sniff uh, physician is available during work, normal working hours. And then you have these sniff specialists who are available all the other times. And it's really those evenings and weekends where a lot of potentially preventable readmissions occur. So having the clinical expertise to manage someone before it becomes a crisis and they have to go out, I think is really a strategy for providers to consider. Absolutely. We have to be able to identify acute changes in the residents in the SNF and treat them there versus where we may have previously sent them out for those, um, you know, preventable instances. Absolutely. Well, I know this was a ton of food for thought for our audience. Any final thoughts you have about the proposed rule that we haven't discussed or strategies you think providers should be thinking about right now, Carly? You know, we've dealt with so much from the start of PDPM, um, the global pandemic changed a lot uh, for us all and things took the back seat. And I think this is really coming back to training and education. Even if you did it at the beginning, you need to do it again. Everyone needs to understand their role in the community. And again, the big picture, why and how they are doing it. We need to provide everyone with the tools that they need to be successful in their role. Everyone plays plays a big part in this. And so I really do think it comes down to having buy-in from your staff, keeping everyone accountable. Think of all the things we triple check at the end of a billing cycle. We need to also do those things with outcomes and accuracy and coding. So uh, again, I think training and education is going to be the most important here. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being here today, Carly, and for the tremendous work you do at Gravity. I know you've given our listeners a lot to strategize for in the coming months. Thanks, Melissa, for having me. It was great to participate in this. If you'd like to learn more about Carly or Gravity, please don't hesitate to reach out to me directly. And you can always find us on LinkedIn. Please let us know how we can assist you. 
Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed today's content, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Remember, it's not just what you know, but how you apply it that makes all the difference. See you next time. Thank you.